You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts and others about human rights and international humanitarian law. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and International Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Sandra Jacobsen. This podcast features Thomas Spikerboer. He is a visiting professor at the Institute and whose focus lies within border deaths and European migration policies. What are border deaths? Where do they occur and why? And in this lecture, which was held in cooperation with the Association of Foreign Affairs in Lund under the event Wednesday Night Rights, Thomas analyzes border deaths as large-scale, protracted and a policy-related violation of the right to life. Enjoy. I asked the organizers, the, the Foreign Affairs Association, uh, not to use uh, uh, the picture I was afraid they would use being of some poor dead or almost dead Syrian or Sub-Saharan African, uh, because I discovered while preparing for this talk that uh, the shipwreck on a rocky coast is a standard genre in painting. So I will be using some of them and I will, I will try to illustrate my points by pointing out that, there are, that artists, have, painters have been using this genre in different ways. And that's basically what I want to do with human rights. This is a painting by Wijnand Nijen, a completely obscure, high romantic Dutch painter. It's from 1830, 1837, uh, and it's in the Rijksmuseum in, uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, I think it's a quite good painting. Uh, the, the life is done very well. There's lots of drama, lots of action. And I think the genre is popular because it allows painters to show their skills in doing different things in making a composition, in making drama, in, in, in making a sea, in depicting human beings, skies. So you can combine many different difficult things, just like uh, in human rights law. Okay, I will talk about border deaths, and I have to explain what I understand by border deaths. Border deaths are people who die um, while they're trying to enter another country. Border deaths occur at some borders and not at others. So border deaths are typical at European borders, American borders, Australian borders, South African borders. They occur at borders of wealthy countries. Um, I show you a graph with um, a graph from data sets on European border deaths. Uh, the highest two lines are, represent media-based uh, data sets. So they are based on newspaper reports. And the lower one is, that's one we created at the FU, it's based on civil registries. So we had a team of researchers go along the coasts of uh, southern Europe, it's the European side of the Mediterranean, go through all death certificates between 1990 and 2013, and then filter out uh, dead migrants. It's a much lower uh, uh, thing, a much lower graph. Um, all these data are extremely problematic. Uh, in the newspapers, you will often see very um, uh, um, definite statements about how many people die and which percentage of people that cross die. That's sham. It's nonsense. All these data sets are extremely problematic. I can explain you why if you're interested in that during the Q&A. Um, and it's, they're so problematic that it's impossible to say how the number of deaths, deaths develops through time. 
I think that you see a general increase, but to say that it's more this year than last year or less this year than last year, the data is so problematic that you, that you cannot say that. You cannot say that. What we can say is that hundreds and probably thousands of people have been dying at Europe's borders for a couple of decades. A hundred and, and probably hundreds and thousands every year. Well, this is the biggest amount of non-natural deaths in Europe. It's a major uh, issue. So I want to emphasize how relative these data are. They do represent something real, but they're problematic in saying it's more this year than that year, or it's more in this country than in that country because the data is too problematic. But it's, uh, it's massive. It's massive. Now, the question I want to discuss is whether this is a tragedy or a human rights violation. Is it a tragedy like the tragedy of the Medusa, which was a French Navy ship which uh, had a shipwreck off the coast of Senegal. The, the French were going to do something colonial uh, in West Africa. Um, and um, uh, then it was, it was under-equipped and, and many people died. Uh, if you look at the painting, you will see that apparently there were black people on French Navy ships in 1819. Interesting. It's a very interesting painting. It's famous. It caused a stir when it was uh, presented first in 1819. And it made uh, Jericho, who's already famous, it made him even more famous. This depicts a tragedy. And a tragedy, a Greek tragedy, is something that is outside the control of human action. Remember Oedipus, he is foretold, or his parents are foretold, or forget that he will kill his father. So he is raised somewhere else in another family without knowing who his father is. So that he will be, un and yet he kills his father. That's a tragedy. It's outside human control. And that is how border deaths are usually represented in discourse. There's another painting from a similar genre, from Turner, who apparently was an anti-slavery activist. This is an extremely activist uh, painting. It's now known as the slave ship, but he presented it under another name, being slavers throwing overboard the border dead and dying. So he is... This is um, a jacuzzi of, uh, of slavery, of the slave trade. Or is it a human rights violation? Uh, what Turner here is basically saying, this is outrageous, it has to end. It's another way of depicting, uh, this is not a shipwreck actually, but uh, uh, death at sea. So is it Jericho or is it Turner? If you want to understand that, we have to understand how the number of deaths at sea, at European borders, predominantly at sea, could go up so radically in 25 years. Because before 1990, it happened in individual cases per year, and it's now much bigger. That much you can say on, on the basis of, the, of this graph. Yeah, so before 1990, it was almost non-existent, except, of course, at the Iron Curtain where people were shot at, but in the back. They were killed by the country they tried to leave. What you see here, it's one of the ways to illustrate that over the past 50 years, international mobility has exploded. And it has exploded as a consequence of economic policy of, let's say, the global north. This is 
highly desired. The global north wants this. It's good for the economy. Um, and this is what we want. However, and, and, and in order to make this possible, an enormous infrastructure has been built, which is partly physical, uh, airports, and roads to airports, hotels near airports. Partly it's a service uh, economy, it's uh, people uh, uh, helping you to get visa, it's travel agencies, and partly it's legal. Uh, you have to regulate all this. So it's a very complicated infrastructure, and the, the essential point of this infrastructure is that you can access it from any point in the world. You can go from any place to any other place. That's a problem for states, because states, one of the elements of statehood is that a state has control over its population. And if you transport, by now I think there's 5.6 billion flights, people getting on planes every year, including domestic flights, by the way, so I don't know the number of international flights. That's a massive amount of people. And states risk losing control over who is on their territory. Now, around 1990, especially Europe, Europe has had an avant-garde role in this respect, has innovated, has, has thought of very innovative ways of controlling access to the global mobility infrastructure. Not so much access to the territory, but access to the infrastructure itself, which is problematic because the point of the infrastructure is that you can access it anywhere. They have done so by harmonizing their visa policies. Um, before 1990, from any part, from any country in the world, you could get to at least one European country without needing a visa, because these visa policies were not harmonized. They harmonized it, and it basically meant that the global south needs an entry visa. The red countries need an entry visa. The dark red countries even need a transit visa. So you can't even transit at the European airport if you are from the, from the DRC or from Somalia. And the green countries don't need an entry visa. Uh, they, they may need a visa if they want to stay for longer than three months, but they can enter the country. Now, harmonizing your visa policy is not enough because people used to get on visa, on, on planes, without having a visa. So a next element was introducing carrier sanctions. You force air, 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 uh, air airlines to check before departure whether people have a valid document, an actual genuine document, and whether they have a visa. And if they don't, they get a stiff fine, a five or six thousand euro for each person, which means they don't make any profit on transporting that person. And uh, the European states have enabled uh, airlines to check which documents are genuine and which not. So they can access databases. Um, they can have documents checked uh, via, via internet. So what has happened in addition is that Border controls have been deputated to private companies. These nice people at the check-in counter 
Every time you enter a plane, they check whether you have the right documents. You may not be aware of it, but that's what they do. Um, now they have privatized it and they have externalized it. It's outside European territory. In this way, you uh, European states have succeeded in keeping particular nationalities, this is discrimination based on nationality, outside the global mobility infrastructure unless they have an explicit permit to enter it. That's a great success. Uh, if you combine two data sets from Eurostat, uh, you can see that only uh, three of every 10,000 passengers that arrives in, at European airports from outside the EU does not have the right uh, documents. That's an insane success. It's almost complete enforcement. It's almost complete enforcement. So, great. Thumbs up for this system. Wonderful. Almost perfect. However, there's two howevers. There are limits to this enforcement, limits to this control, because of all undocumented migrants who are found to be on European territories, something like half or 70% entered legally and then overstayed. So they had a visa, but they stayed longer than they were, uh, had a visa for. This means that if you, if the number of incoming people increases by a factor of nine, which is what happened between 93 and 2015, it may be that the number of undocumented people also has increased by a factor of nine. I'm not entirely sure, but it's, it's nine, but it, it may well have increased a lot. So maybe, as in Dutch you would say, this is the, the, the insane success, is a case of mopping the floor with the tap still open, dweilen met de kraan open. It's useless. It may be, I'm not sure, but th th that's certainly something to, to consider. Secondly, the people who have been denied access to the formal mobility economy access the informal mobility economy, also known as human smuggling. And that's where death occurs. Now, the response to this has been an intensified enforcement of legislation against smuggling, cracking down on human smuggling, to criminalize it, it's obligatory now under the UN Protocol Against Human Smuggling from 2000 to criminalize human smuggling. Um, European states and, and the United States uh, and, and Australia intercept people on the high seas, try to bring them back where they came from. Um, so that's called pushbacks. Um, States try to make readmission policies, so when someone nevertheless succeeds in, in accessing the Canary Islands, we can send him or her straight away back to Senegal. Um, and that kind of uh, uh, policies, and of course the, the readmission policies, the most infamous examples these days is the EU-Turkey uh, uh, deal from March 2016 and the current uh, Italy-Libya cooperation. A response to Human smuggling has been a crackdown, a criminal law approach, an enforcement approach. A second thing states are doing on the Mediterranean, European states, is to step up search and rescue. And that's in itself very humanitarian, so you try to save people's lives. But search and rescue is indistinguishable from interception. 
people who are rescued are also arrested. And the same is true for humanitarian agencies. It's very nice that MSF has these humanitarian boats, but they're only allowed to bring the people they have rescued to designated entry points and to, they, have, they have to hand them over to the border police. So interception and search and rescue is, is the same and to, to, through the cooperation with Libya, uh, search and rescue and pushbacks is now also the same. So you're rescued and brought back to where you came from. Okay, now, how could this happen? How could this whole process happen? There's two theories about the relation between European policies or American policies, but I'm focusing on, on, on Europe. On Euro but on, there's two theories on the relation between European policies and deaths. The first is um, found is popular among and found exclusively among policymakers. And it says stricter policies are the way to reduce deaths. Because if we enforce migration control more than we do now, the number of people who cross on boats will, be, will, will, will get smaller. So the volume of people exposed to the risk of death will be smaller and therefore less people will die. And uh, through our um, uh, search and rescue activities, less people, a lower percentage of the people of who is exposed to the risk will die. So we make the, 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 the group at risk smaller and we reduce the risk of the people who are at risk. So then the number of deaths goes down. Except that's not what happens. That's not, I'm very skeptical about, my, about the statistics that I showed you and which I partly produced myself, but we can agree that it's not going down. It seems to be going up. It, it's anyway, it's not going down. So it seems that this theory is not correct. And when you say this to policymakers, they say, well, if we wouldn't have done this, it would be even worse. And that may be true. That may be true. The data are so problematic that we don't know. However, among all academics working on this, and it's, it's quite unusual, all academics working on this, about 20 or 30 people, maybe it attracts mainly open borderish humanitarian lefty people, but then there are also a bit less humanitarian, a bit lefty people who also say the same. They say it's precisely these enforcement policies that cause the problem. Because the, the stronger, the, the more you enforce these policies excluding people from the global mobility infrastructure, the more people will, will have no other option if they want to move, and they want to move, um, than to use irregular means of migration, than to take a boat or a lorry. And um, the effect, because search and rescue equals interception, the, those parts of the Mediterranean where there's a large navy uh, presence will discontinue to be used. So people will start using other routes in order not to be rescued because they know what rescue means. But they will take longer routes uh, in order to uh, outsmart the, the humanitarians 
Uh, they will try to sail at night. They will try to, for example, go to the sea with 20 small boats, and if one rescue boat is discovered, they will spread out so that 19 boats may reach the European shores, and only one of them will be caught. All this makes it more dangerous. Right? Instead of bringing the numbers down, it, brings, it, 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 it increases the risk. Well, that's the alternative uh, uh, hypothesis on um, the, um, on the connection between European policies and deaths. So everyone agrees there's a, there's a connection. Policymakers say we need more enforcement, uh, a stricter approach, more criminal, higher punishments, go after the, the, the bad smugglers. And the others say that's, that may be well-intentioned. It's not necessarily a perverse idea, but it, it, it's, it not only doesn't work, it makes it worse. It positively backfires. Um, by the way, something I have to say is that one of the things politicians say is that smugglers are evil people. First, I think I have to tell you, because that's, that's a uh, technical thing, there's a difference between smuggling and uh, trafficking. In human smuggling, a person who wants to cross a border buys services of a service provider called the smuggler, and the victim of this, it, it, that's criminal offense in itself, the victim of this criminal offense is the state. And if the service provider abides by the contract, then the, the migrant uh, is the beneficiary of this agreement. Like in all other contracts, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so contracts are very problematic, maybe one of the parties doesn't deliver. It may be that the smuggler is also an evil person. Many smugglers are simply service providers. They provide a service which has been criminalized. They're not necessarily evil people. Human trafficking is something different. There, the trafficked person is the victim because the trafficked person is forced into, maybe not even cross-border, is forced into a form of labor uh, or is duped into a form of, the person is misled. There, the, there the, the, the migrant is the victim. They're two different things. And they, of course, the difference is not always that clear, so it's problematic. But please let, let's keep the two separate. Going after smuggler is, going after traf traffickers is in itself a good thing because they're evil people and they harm individuals. Going after smugglers is a much more problematic thing. They may be simply hustlers. They may be people who try to get by doing stuff. Yeah. The people also sell phone cards and that kind of shady, shady stuff, but not necessarily... Okay, so please keep the two apart. Smuggling and trafficking, two different things. Uh, uh, trafficking, bad, awful. Uh, smuggling, not necessarily so. Okay, so there's two theories about how law and policy uh, relate. Now, you might say, this guy has been talking now for 25 minutes, and the word you, he was promised to, to do, say something about human rights. Where are the human rights? Well, they're here. What, how could this be a human rights issue? If, if you conclude that this is a human rights issue, then it's Europe's biggest human rights issue. Thousands of people dying year after year after year after year. So there's quite something at stake at, at this label. It's not merely something, something technical. 
However, it's also very technical. It's a very technical legal thing. I'll slow you, I'll take you through it as quickly as I can because it's also a bit boring, but it's interesting to look at these details. First, states are only responsible for human rights violations that take place within their jurisdiction, normally within their country. And one of the objections that's raised that people, is that people say, well, these deaths take place outside European territories. Some of them do, maybe most of them do, but in our own database that's based on civil registries in Europe, we have a couple of hundred deaths each year that according to state-produced documents occur within territorial waters. And so territorial waters is the territory. Oh, that's in itself no problem. Enough of this happens within, of, enough of this happens, occurs within European territories. What is at stake is the right to life. That first and foremost means that states should not kill people. But in addition, that, and that's usually not the case here. There are cases where Spanish border guards shoot at migrants. Uh, the minefields in Greece, which were taken out, which were uh, discontinued only uh, 10 years ago, they were a clear violation of human rights. But usually people die of natural causes. They drown or they suffocate or they're not actively killed. But states also have an obligation to protect the right to life by law. For example, that means you need to have a police force uh, to whom I if, if I, if I get a death threat tonight, there should be a system here in the good city of Lund where I can turn and say, please protect me against these people. That's an obligation of states. So they have to do something active to protect life. I will take you through th three cases that I think more or less get you the idea of how human rights analysis might look like. The first is Öner Yildiz. Öner Yildiz is a Turkish case, and it's about a garbage dump in Istanbul. The garbage dump has, been, uh, has not been uh, maintained in a proper way. Uh, it's in violation of Turkish uh, domestic law. Uh, and the main problem is that there's no uh, methane, methane, methane uh, it's a, a chemical substance, extraction system. So if you dump garbage, you must make sure the methane, it's a gas, can get out. And if, if, it, if you don't do that, you're sure it will explode. When it will explode is unclear. How big the explosion will be is unclear, but that it will explode is completely clear. That was problem number one. Problem number two was that the city of Istanbul had allowed, again for decades, illegal dwellings, illegal housings, housings built without permit on this dump. So they knew these people would die. They didn't know exactly which people, who would be at home and who would not be at home, and who would be living there at exact, but they knew, they knew they would die. Okay, so the, the European Court of Human Rights said this is foreseeable that it would happen. It was kind of foreseeable who would die. It was foreseeable which population was at risk of death. And you had a positive obligation, a Turkish state, do something about the municipal authorities in Istanbul and to make sure they followed the rules. You had to act in order to protect the life of a kind of identifiable, uh, the, 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 the right to life of an identifiable population against a perfectly foreseeable risk. So it's a foreseeable risk. It was caused by natural causes, 
a methane explosion is a natu natu natural phenomenon related to human behavior. So when this, ex this kind of explosion is related to human behavior, that's, that's a quite nice parallel with, with uh, death at sea. And there's an identifiable population that's also comparable to death at sea. We kind of know what kind of people are going to die. Now, one of the requirements that the European Court of Human Rights uh, has specified is that if there is um, an identifiable, a foreseeable risk of death, states have to uh, set up an investigation. They have to investigate what the risk is and how they can make it smaller. Maybe, it can, maybe they can't exclude it, but they have to do something in order to see whether they can minimize the risk. And in the border death context, that would mean they need to gather data on, uh, uh, on deaths, for example, from their own civil registries. It took a Dutch research team to gather, to collect data which, which European authorities had, had simply had in their official registries. And these registries are digitalized. They can be accessed. Why don't you do that, dear countries? Why don't you collect? Why do you don't, don't you do your own work for which you just need to adjust your software a bit? It took us 175,000 euros to do this. <laughs> no, you have to investigate how many deaths there are, whether there's a relation to, you, to, European, to, to your own policies, and if you can think of smarter ways of implementing your policies in order to bring down the number of deaths. It's a completely normal way of thinking. In traffic safety or any other field of policy, you, that's how you think. Well, that's what uh, follows from Erner Yildiz. Then a, an issue here is that you might say, it, it's certainly... <clears throat> It's valid to say, well, the victim contributed to his own death in this case. People themselves got on these boats. And there are these horror stories about people being forced on boats. No doubt that happens. But the majority simply thought, I'd better get on these boats because it's better than the alternative. Now, how does the contribution of the victim affect a human rights analysis? Anor Yildiz is a case in point. Because people knew they were living in illegal housing and they knew they were living on a garbage dump. And there had been newspaper, re newspaper reports, maybe this was not a, the part of the population that read these reports, but that this garbage dump was dangerous was in the newspapers. It was, was not secret. So there people themselves contributed, but it's not a very clear case. A nicer case is Furdik, which is... Uh, it, Human rights cases are never nice, right? It's, it's awful. It's a, a woman who goes hiking and dies. And then the question is, were, was the helicopter there soon enough? Uh, and the answer of the court was, yes, it was there. There was no violation because the helicopter was there soon enough. But the court did not say, yeah, listen, hiking is dangerous. And if you drop into a ravine, uh, that, yeah, uh, th that's really sad. Uh, but the authorities have no obligation to do something for you because if you don't want to run risk, don't go hiking in the mountains. They didn't even raise it. So you could say something similar here. Yes, certainly people did something that was risky. Uh, it was risky because of state behavior. There's a perfect, I mean, there are ferries across the Mediterranean. There's th three times a week. There's a ferry from Tunis to Palermo. It costs 50 euros and no one ever dies. So crossing the Mediterranean is not dangerous in itself. Um, 
but so people know they're 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 taking a risk, uh, but that doesn't that, that and that that maybe does something, but it doesn't diminish the obligation of states to see whether they can minimize the risk. So that's an obligation that remains. So I think it's perfectly possible to argue that border deaths occur. In the context of migration policy, they're clearly related. The fact that they occur and the extent to which they occur seems to be, as a general matter, clearly related to European policies. They barely before occurred before the innovations in European policies in the 1990s. They're perfectly foreseeable. We can be damn sure that people have died today and will die tomorrow, day after day after day. It's perfectly foreseeable. We know more or less where, and we know more or less how, and we know more or less who. The large majority is sub-Saharan African man between 20 and 40. Uh, and we know more or less where they are now, where the people who are going to be subjected to that risk, where they are now. So I think you can argue on the basis of the, of, of the right to life that states have an obligation to investigate this, which they don't, and to figure out whether they can adapt their policies so as to bring the number of people who die down. Now, an almost immediate response I get to this kind of analysis, yeah, but that would mean opening the floodgates. Everybody will come. I don't think an investigation opens anything. It opens the investigation, but nothing more. And when I suggest to adapt policies, that's all I do. You have to think of possibilities to adapt your policies. Of course, yeah, of options to adapt your policies. That might, so the most radical version of this I have heard is the idea that you end carrier sanctions, that you say we will allow people to access the global mobility infrastructure and to get to European territory. And then the natural response of, st of European states will be to have massive detention centers at the border to check whether people have a right to entry. Now, detention is bad, but death is far worse. So I think that would be an improvement. It would not bring, the sky would not fall down. It would not open the floodgates. It would allow people to safely travel to European territory to have their claim to admission examined. Now, that's, that's about as radical as it gets. That's not very radical. Let's go back to the situation as it was in 1990. Uh, another, a more limited version of this is to suspend carrier sanctions for people of whom you know they are entitled to asylum. So to suspend it for Syrians and Eritreans, you know, as soon as they reach European territory, they are entitled to asylum. And also you can detain them to see whether they, are, they don't happen to be the, the minister of defense of Eritrea or, or Syria, whether they shouldn't be excluded. So you can maintain, you can, you can maintain migration control even if you think of alternatives to this externalized version of, uh, of, 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 uh, of, of migration control. Okay, so that's as radical as it gets. The other option is to say, no, 
or yeah, to some extent, but then the better policy option is enforcement. And what European states say, I, I tried this on the Dutch uh, Deputy Minister for, for Migration Affairs, who was as, as friendly and courageous to come to a seminar of our a public seminar with lots of activists who, and he had uh, bodyguards around him, so it was really nice. His, his response to the human rights argument was, they bring it on to themselves. It's their responsibility. We really try to explain them as dangerous. And that's also, in, in your, as a human rights argumentation, it's possible to argue that. It's possible to argue this is not the responsibility of European states. We're trying to prevent people from taking these risks. We're not passive. We go after them. We try to catch them as soon as they have left the Libyan coast and bring them back to the safe Libyan coast. Uh, this was before the CNN reports, not before the MC, MC International reports, which the guy no doubt knew. But so it is possible to say, no, it's not, it's not a human rights uh, uh, responsibility of European states. I accept that. You can argue both ways. I disagree with such an argument for two reasons. First, I think Erner Yildiz is, is, is a good parallel. Um, it's people doing dangerous things. It's uh, imperfect state policy, but you know the risk is there. And you have to be more creative than simply do some, go on doing what you have done for the past 25 years, and you see it's not getting better, and it's probably getting worse. So the situation on the Mediterranean is a natural experiment. And it's, 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 it's going the wrong way. It's going the wrong way. The second reason I disagree with this, and I say this with some hesitation, is the, because of the third uh, case. And my hesitation is that it only applies to refugees. And now I'm all for refugees. It's all very wonderful. But I don't think non-refugees should die either. So I, I, I hesitate about limiting the argumentation to refugees. But nevertheless, I will explain to you why I think it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it may be relevant to do so. There is, again, there is, these are all right-to-life cases. None of them are nice. It's Kalender. Kalender is a Turkish man who leaves a train and then is hit by an oncoming train and, and dies. Uh, there's a, a few cases like this. Uh, and usually the court says, sorry, you knew you shouldn't. You should have left on the platform and you wanted to be home earlier and you, you, you knew. And, and you, you, there's a limit to what the state can do. However, here, um, the, the train that Mr. Kalender was leaving was on, on a middle track. So it stopped at the station where he wanted to get out and where he was allowed to get out on the middle track. And the only way he could leave the train was by crossing another track. There was no platform. And the whole railway station in general was unsafe, even according to Turkish uh, standards, because there should have been a tunnel. There was no tunnel. So the only way he could leave the train which is why you get on a train, yeah? You get on a train or you should leave it in, the, in your destination. The only way he could do this was by taking a lethal risk. And the court said that's a violation of the right to life. This situation was a, was, was, was a, this, this situation constituted a violation of Mr. Kalender's right to life. Although it, was, it was, although it was unclear that he would die, but that someone would die was kind of that risk was so was big enough. This makes me think of a case before the 
European Court of Justice, which was decided on the 7th of March last year, X and X versus Belgium. I will spare, I will spare you the, the legal details. It's only about the facts of the case. It's a, a, a Christian family from Aleppo, and the case was in Belgian courts during the siege of Aleppo, which was when fighting was at its, at its worst. Uh, a Christian family from Aleppo traveled to the Belgian embassy in Beirut and said, please give us a, a, a tourist visa so we can apply for asylum. And when they had their, done their application, they traveled back to Syria and they said, we have to, in the Belgian, the Belgian litigation, they said, we have to, because uh, in, in Lebanon, one of every three inhabitants is a Syrian refugee. One in every three. So look around you, every next person. One in three. So you and you. That's in, in, so Lebanon doesn't want, doesn't allow new Syrian refugees. And uh, this family said it's possible to be in Lebanon as a Syrian refugee without being registered, but it's expensive because it's illegal and we're, we're poor. We can't afford this, so we have to go back to Syria. Maybe not to Aleppo. I think they didn't go back to Aleppo. The case doesn't say it, but we have to go to the place where international law gives us a right to escape from, where we should be protected from returning. So the refusal of the visa forced them to return to a place where their life was in danger. That's Kalender. The only way they could leave Syria in Syria, their life was at risk. The only way that they could leave was get on one of these shitty boats and run the risk of dying. So the European policy, together with the war in Syria, created the calendar situation. And it's a violation of their, not, not just of the Norofulman principle, that's the part I want to ignore, uh, but it's a violation of the right to life, to expect people to cross in a manner that may well mean, mean their death. Okay, to wind up, in other fields of law, such as aviation law, which I studied in order to see how the life, how the right to, how is the right to life protected when I got on, get on a plane? That's an insane system. Getting on a plane is not dangerous anyhow. Crossing the street is more dangerous, really. But there's an insane international legal system protecting the safety of people getting on planes. It's very inventive. Um, it's, uh, I was flabbergasted as, as a, so I, I suddenly felt a very traditional lawyer uh, because they do things completely differently there. They ignore state sovereignty. There's a computer in Montreal which makes law. It makes new laws every month. It's an algorithm. Like, oh, we see some safety issues if we do this. Follow other procedures. Oh, we all follow other procedures. Now, this is an insane, insane legal system protecting the right to life of people who are not in danger anyway. And there, lawmakers go to all ends to optimize safety, and they're extremely inventive. Now, if we in human rights law choose not to be so inventive in the case of irregular migrants, that's not, uh, it's certainly a possibility. Maybe we get away with that in, in human rights courts. But it's not a, a legal or logical necessity. It's a human choice. So we can choose.
to let this happen and to say, oh, human rights law has nothing to do with this. I think we can do so, but we also can be more inventive like uh, my colleagues in aviation law. It's a, so we could say it's none of our business, it's not a human rights violation, but that's, that's not a choice that we have to make. And it may be the case that European states have a right to exclude people from their territories, but it doesn't mean they have a right to exclude people from the right to life. And so in conclusion, I think that the deaths of hundreds or thousands of people each year at our borders, it's not Jericho, but it's Turner. Um, I thank you. If you want to know more, uh, there's, we have a project. So I, I run a five-year project. We're ending it. Uh, we were almost finished with, uh, with six people. Uh, you will see the, our publication and so on on borderdeaths.org. On my own personal website, you will see publications. And uh, I also want to, uh, to advertise, uh, as a cynical uh, academic entrepreneur, the fact that we have a, a, a master's track in international migration and refugee law where one of our courses addresses topics uh, like this. Uh, thank you, and I think we have half an hour for questions and answers, so please shoot. That was Thomas Pickeboer, a visiting professor at the Institute who shared his decade-long research on border deaths. And my name is Sandra Jacobsen, and this podcast was brought to you from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. And did you enjoy this podcast? Then be sure to check up on our website for more podcasts concerning human rights issues. <laughs>